free market liberalism is the social system of a civil society based on and protective of personal liberty and human betterment. Socialism is the anti-social system of politics over people, governmental power instead of peaceful and free association, and a handful of imposed political plans instead of a pluralism of as many plans as there are people in the world. Welcome to Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Richard Ebling, author of For a New Liberalism. Dr. Ebling, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. What is liberalism? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Uh, it all depends upon the part of the world you're living in and the period of time you're talking to, as well as the people you're talking to. Uh, originally, liberalism, that is in the 18th and the 19th century, was viewed as a political philosophy dedicated to the principles of individual liberty uh, based upon a foundational notion of individual rights in the context of which each person's life and property, honestly acquired property, would be viewed as the singular or at least primary responsibility of government to secure and protect. Uh, outside of that, uh, each individual was viewed as at liberty to guide his own life by his own purposes, goals, dreams, wishes, values, either on his own or in peaceful and voluntary association and interaction and exchange with others. Uh, that was the ideal of the 19th century uh, of the liberal system of ideas. Uh, as I explain in the book, uh, in an early chapter, uh, it brought great liberation. It uh, was the movement that ended global slavery. It was the movement that rapidly made the case for wider personal and civil liberties, uh, that made the case uh, for ending the government restrictions on trade and, and, uh, and uh, 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 regulation of both domestic and international affairs uh, that made the case that government should be more responsible to through representative government to the citizenry rather than the government directing uh, arbitrarily people's lives. And finally, they were very active in making the case for bringing about international and world peace. Uh, they often said that if you eliminate the trade barriers among countries and allow people as private citizens to freely trade, exchange, uh, uh, produce and consume, you depoliticize most, if not all, of the frictions that historically have brought about wars and conflicts among nations. And they also were great advocates of, of peaceful arbitration. If there are disputes about country, be countries, better to do it through peaceful arbitration to find a solution rather than turning to combat and war. Walk me now, through. Now if I can just add, yeah. um, unfortunately, in the 20th century, especially in the United States, that meaning was changed. Uh, in the late 19th century, two anti-liberal movements had arisen, socialism and nationalism. And uh, many people who were sympathetic to socialism uh, decided to say, well, th th there's the older liberalism, and, but they were merely negative. Oh, government shouldn't restrict you. Should, government shouldn't control you. Government should prevent, shouldn't prevent you from worshiping the way you want writing what you wanted, uh, but there needed to be a positive side of liberalism. And that was the socialist influence in that, well, government had to do positive things for the people, redistribute wealth, regulate the market to see that people were treated fairly. And unfortunately, that is the conception of liberalism, this more modern pro-government activist notion 
uh, that liberalism has become in the United States, particularly since uh, the early decades and particularly since the 1930s in the, in, in the, uh, uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, in Europe, for the most part, liberalism has more of the traditional connotation. Walk me through what's wrong with this mindset. This is the sitting president of America, Joe Biden. In reference to a large uh, spending package, he says that we're looking at this completely wrong. He says, it is zero price tag on the debt we're paying. We're going to pay for everything we spend. Every time I hear this is going to cost A, B, C, D, the truth is based on a commitment that I made. It's going to cost nothing because we're going to raise the revenue. Good thing about government is there are not costs, whereas in the private sector, there are costs. What's wrong with that mindset? Well, of course, his sleight of hand when he presented the case for his spending in that context was that he basically said, well, the vast majority of the people, if I had my way, would not have to pay for these programs. Uh, what I will do is I will tax the rich, uh, personal taxes on, on the wealthy, uh, raising corporate income taxes and, and other levies on corporations would all sort of pay for it. So in other words, it's basically saying, I promise not to impose a tax cost on you who I want to vote for me and support me. I'm going to tax the people who, well, you don't like and I don't like, and who cares if they have less money? And that way by taxing them, I won't have to have the federal government borrow the money and that way, it's not increasing the debt. And at the same time, you're getting a free lunch. Now, of course, nothing has a free lunch. Uh, to tax the wealthy is to tax capital. And to tax capital means the savings and investment process out of which technological improvements come, production occurs, jobs are created. So basically, this is the old sleight of hand that taking from Peter to give to Paul and creating the, the, the impression that, that, that Paul, in receiving this, has no cost, but there is always a cost to it. How can we empirically test whether or not liberalism helps the poor? Uh, well, uh, compare things 200 years ago to today. Let me give some examples, <clears throat> if I may. Uh, in 1820, uh, there was approximately, according to economic historians and demographers, approximately 1 billion people in the end on the entire planet. Uh, out of that 1 billion people, approximately, uh, it is estimated again by economic historians and demographers that about 90% of, of, of the entire world population lived in poverty and many in abject poverty. That means like, I don't know if I'm eating anything tomorrow. Fast forward to today. There is in the world today approximately 7.8 billion people, right? From 1 billion to 7.8 billion people in 200 years. But in spite of that dramatic increase in the number of mouths to feed, again, and this is from the, the United Nations data and, and, and the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, right? Very respectable, you know, mainstream NGOs, Today, out of the 7.8 billion people, less than 10% live in poverty. So we've had this explosion of the population of the world and this dramatic decrease in the poverty conditions. Now, that doesn't mean that those who still live in poverty are not 
living lives that none of us would want to live. But what it does demonstrate is that liberalism by freeing markets, freeing individuals to be creative, innovative, at liberty to follow their own plans, to freely associate with others where gains for, for, for trade seem to be evident and likely, has blossomed and created this. Another example. In, uh, the, in around 1820, uh, in Europe, uh, the life expectancy, even in, quote, more advanced countries at that time, Great Britain, France, etc., life expectancy was in your 30s. You were ancient if you lived into your early 40s. Today, in the West in particular, life expectancy is into, into the 80s. And now, even in what we used to call the third world countries, developing countries, Asia, Africa, Latin America, even there, life expectancies have gone from under 30 200 years ago to the 60s and beginning into the 70s. This is a dramatic increase. And the other thing that I should point out, because it's raised, oh, income inequality. 200 years ago, you had the king, you had the aristocracy, uh, those connected with, with the state approved and state cooperating uh, religious uh, uh, establishments, and they lived a good life by the economic standards of that time. We would find those standards unacceptable today in comparison to everyone else who is poor. That is a huge inequality. Today, in a country like America, what is the difference between being rich and poor for most people? Do I have one flat screen TV at home or two or three? Do I have one car or two or three? Uh, do I go out and eat at a, at a, at a nice restaurant uh, twice a month or only once a month? Uh, and the, another example of this, is that the bountifulness of food, the improvements in living conditions of, of medical care, uh, of, of key convenience and ease, all of these are, are the products of freeing people to find creative ways to make their lives better in free association with others in the competitive marketplace. Cat, liberal, liberal free markets have, 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 have transformed the world. From, 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 from poverty and despair and conflict and, and cruel kings and, and, and corrupt aristocrats to a world of unbelievable equality of not just opportunity, but standards of living. And this is now increasingly global. And where the, these, these, these pockets exist, where, where life is a lot less than that, well, where should you turn for, to find the fault? With free markets? No, they're backward countries with corrupt statist governments that intrude, regulate, control, corruptly redistribute towards themselves and their lackeys. And it's the failure of liberalism to be in those remaining corners of the world that perpetuates that terrible poverty there. Some of the biggest costs that people will uh, come across in their life are uh, health care, housing, and schooling. We have seen a general increase in the prices of these things, while we've seen a decline in the price of things like computers, televisions, uh, microwaves, printers, microphones, a, a lot of these other things. However, the big three that really uh, are commonly used as a, see, this is why we can't have any free markets, because vitally important things, schooling, housing, and healthcare can be so expensive. Why are those things such outliers? Because those are the areas in our societies most dominated, controlled, uh, and regulated, and almost dictated by government. Education is. Public schools is a socialist enterprise. The government owns the schools. 
the go government hires all the employees and the government pays them through tax funds collected in one way or another at the, at, at, at the local, the state or the federal level. No one is responsible for the conditions and qualities uh, and shortcomings of education in the United States other than government itself. Public schools are socialist schools. They're not private enterprise. And in those places where the market has enabled and some people can afford private education, you find that the, that the quality, the variety, the, 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 uh, the, the teaching styles and methods uh, to, to, to the pedagogy to try to arouse the interests and, and activities of the students are virtually always far superior. Um, why is it that so many parents, in spite of how certain intellectual elites try to argue, would like to see more school choice? Because they want to select the school that they want their kid to and be able to determine in a way they can't with the go government schools what the curriculum will be and what the pedagogy and teaching methods will be and the standards that their child is expected to meet to have a far better education. The same thing applies to healthcare. Okay, this is a thing. Increasingly government funds, regulates and controls the healthcare industry. You don't get to choose your doctors. You don't get to choose your medicines. You don't get to, 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 to determine what tests you have. Increasingly, these are controlled through government finance and regulation by the government. Medical, the healthcare industry is not a competitive market. It's a rig, rigged, regulated, and controlled market, increasingly with each passing year dominated by government. And tragically, this has been the case, regardless of which political party has, has been in office. Uh, the Democrats might be more enthusiastic about this, but no Republican has ever called for, for a cutback, reduction, or freeing of the uh, healthcare sector from government oversight, control, and funding. And then finally, housing. Uh, are there private builders? Of course there are. But at the same time, uh, in, in many municipal areas, uh, urban areas, what do you have? Government built public housing, which are, which are, which are disaster areas, uh, dirty, unsafe, unmaintained, crime ridden often. And as far as areas where we see the pr private housing, this is, the, this is regulated by zoning laws. Who can build the house? Where can they build the house? What kind of housing can they have? And not just the styles and forms, but the quantities. The fact is, is that government basically says, thou shalt not build any more houses. And therefore, by restricting the supply, and that's what amounts to, in an environment of growing demand, both in general and with rising standards of living, people wanting to move into different houses, better houses, different areas of the country, it makes it extremely difficult for the market to solve it because they're in the straitjacket of these government controls and regulations. So those are the three three sectors in the U.S. economy that are, that, that are really very far from a free market. But the left likes to say, but look, they're, 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 it's all the market that's doing this because they want they basically end up doing this. Everything they don't like, they label caused by capitalism or economic liberalism, or their, their little negative buzzword, neoliberalism. And everything they like is what government does good. And it comes to the idea of profit-seeking companies. The implication is that some people 
are simply benefiting and they're only benefiting with the intention of helping themselves. Therefore, they only benefit themselves. Can you give us an example of some companies that exist? I, I know this is very elementary, but we are up against people who do actually have that idea. Uh, give us an example of some companies that have actually improved the standards of living for people in uh, liberal parts of the world. Uh, clothing, technology, uh, where markets are allowed to have degrees of influence, improvements in medical care, uh, where you can have private alternatives of one type over another in education. Uh, the, the underlying principle of the marketplace, of a free market society, is that you can't do three things. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not bear false witness, right? I'm using the Ten Commandments version of these things, mm -hmm. which basically means don't lie and defraud. Don't, Don't do everything the government does every day. Yes. Yeah. But if, 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 you, if I can't kill you to get what I want, if I can't steal you to get what I want, and if I can't cheat you to get what I want, then how do I get what you have that I want? In the market arena, I have only one way to apply my talents, my ingenuity, my skills, my mind, my abilities to figure out what niche can I find in our division of labor, we all specialize in things, that I can produce what you would desire and sufficiently, and my offering it to you on terms, that you will readily and happily give me what you have that I want. I go to the corner store and I want to read today's Wall Street Journal because I believe that the information that I might get from it is worth more than the cover price of that copy. What is it now? $1.50, $1.75, whatever today's Wall Street Journal costs. I read it online. And I exchange, let's say, that $1.50 for a copy of the newspaper from the fellow at the corner store, because I value the information more than the $1.50 I give. And of course the $1.50 represents what I could buy instead with that sum of money if I didn't buy the newspaper. At the same time, he's selling me one of the copies of the newspaper because he values what he could do with the money he can earn by selling it to me than holding on to the copy. We both win from this exchange. Whether you go to the shoe store, whether you go to the grocery store to buy food, whether you're going to the auto dealership to buy a car, whether you're going out for, for, for a meal at the restaurant or a, or, a, or a movie at the theater, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The nature of the market is that it, 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 it requires people in the pursuit of their own improvement, their self-interest to apply themselves in serving others. The very nature of a competitive market economy is that to, to improve yourself, you must serve the rest of the society. It, it, in, a, in, in a different world, capitalism could be, should be called socialism because it's a social system. Yeah. I help you, you help me on terms that we find mutually agreeable. But of course, that's not what we call these things. But so the very nature of a market economy is that no, you cannot make a profit. You cannot improve your own conditions other than an independent of improving the circumstances of others. I want to just look at the big three, uh, Apple, Amazon, and Walmart. Uh, would you say that uh, these are parasites in the economy or they are net benefits? Apple, Amazon, Walmart. Oh, no. Oh, no, I'm exploited. Oh, I'm being abused. I'm being, oh. Uh, you young whippersnapper. 
uh, I remember, I remember when you used to have a telephone that was on a table, a desk, and you picked up the receiver and it was attached to the base by a cord. And that was as far as you could go. That was as far as you go. And you had to turn the rotary dial. And that's all the phone did. And that's all the phone did in terms of convenience or, or, or technology or phone call of capacity because the government had given a monopoly to AT&T. That monopoly was broken in the late 1970s, early 80s. And competition was allowed. And guess what? First, you had the cordless phone. Then you had the flip phone. Then you had the phone that could do some basic arithmetic. And then you had someone like Steve Jobs who came out, and it's only about 15 years ago, though it seems like our world has dramatically changed in our eyes, but only 15 years ago, his version of the smartphone, where he said to his technologist, you know, you know how to do it, I don't, but I want you to devise a thing that I could hold in my hand like this, and with one thumb, basically push all the buttons so I can do anything I want. And I want it to be a phone, and I want it to be email, and I want it to be text messages, and I want it to be radio, and I want it to be television, and I want it to be uh, 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 iBooks. In other words, I, I have hundreds of books on my phone. This is my portable library compared to the old-fashioned books that are behind me, including my own for no liberalism. Uh, this is what Steve Jobs did, and people like him to revolutionize the world, okay? Uh, again, go back 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you wanted to watch television? It was ABC, CBS, and NBC, licensed and controlled by the federal government, by the Federal Communications Commission. And that too was abolished, that monopoly over the airways and allowing cable and, and satellite television in, in, in the late 70s and early 80s. And now what are we doing? Hundreds of television channels, specializing and focusing on everyone's conceivable niche interest, streaming, doing what we're doing right here. This would have been unheard of 30 years ago. I, you know, I remember old televisions. You know, when I was a kid, I was the remote. Get up and change the channel. Okay, I was the remote. Because some guy, what, what, what was it? Uh, uh, it wasn't Motorola, I figured Zenith. He came up with a remote. I no longer had to be the remote at home. And I didn't have to be the antenna, right? Because you have the ear, rabbit ears. Oh, stand by the TV, one leg up, hand in this direction. The picture's great, don't move. I mean, that's, we're in a different world today, right? We're in a different world today, okay? I don't even need to be anything. And I'm communicating with the world around the world instantly. This is what free market liberalism has done as one indication, okay? As far as Walmart is concerned, these superstores have been great. They give virtually an unending stream of different goods at uh, very competitive prices available to the masses. Goods are not only for the elect and the, and the elite and the aristocratic and royal privilege as they were hundreds of years ago. We are, in, are in, in a market economy that serves all of us. And to the extent the government doesn't regulate which is increasingly fewer, fewer corners, or does not regulate with an excessively heavy hand, the creativity of man is set free into whatever extent the straitjacket of government is not too tight. 
to continue these in technological innovations and improving both the quality and the varieties of what we consume. And if you adjust for inflation, at virtually lower and lower prices. And then uh, I just want to use the Amazon example because Bezos is continuously seen as the evil capitalist. And we're just like a few billion dollars away from the $4 trillion budget uh, solving poverty. When it comes to Amazon, net benefit or net parasite? Amazon has been brilliant. Besides selling my my, my, my book. <laughs> I sell my book. Uh, today, okay, if you wanted to buy anything, you had to go to a brick and mortar store. And some things you want to go to a brick and mortar store, even today. Sometimes you want to try on a piece of clothing, a pair of shoes, to see the quality of a material, talk to someone who might be a salesperson on the floor. But Amazon has transformed how we live. It has transformed it because now from the ease of our own living room, at a laptop computer like you and I, I'm, I'm using, that you and I are communicating through, the goods of the world are at my disposal. And often, since I have a huge warehouse inventory of things all around the country, I can have it within 48, 24 to 48 hours. Mm -hmm. the, the, the world is my oyster because of Amazon. One guy comes along and the idea that, that he'll do, he'll do mail order books. And before you know it, the entire world of shopping has been changed in, 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 in consumer friendly, consumer usable, consumer cost saving ways. The, 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 Amazon is one of the great achievements of modern of the of the modern markets economy. It is not an enemy. It is not an exploiter. Oh, gee, I didn't want to go to the store. I've been exploited. I ordered it off my phone and it came here the next day. Oh, God, I'm so abused. I mean, these people live in a la-la land, okay? These people live in a la-la land. Why is it, uh, I know you write a lot about uh, the, the history of liberalism in this book. How did it go from having, uh, to? how did we get to where we are today where they, the average person has extremely high standards for the voluntary sector and like no standards for the government sector. Uh, I, I'm always being told about, well, there were terrible working conditions under Andrew Carnegie today. Even uh, people who work at Amazon have it very rough and they don't stop to say, but then again, governments are the number one cause of war and mass murder and mass destruction. So uh, let me be very humble when I criticize the free market. Why do we have totally high unrealistic standards for the voluntary sector and no standards for the political class? Basically, because we, we, we live in societies, including in the United States, where we take for granted that certain things, if you want it, are government provided. For example, uh, all the viewers, listeners that are watching this now or in the future, I want you to raise your hand of how if you like going to the Department of Motor Vehicles to renew your, your license. Come on, raise your hand, don't be ashamed. Yeah, I love the long lines. I like to be, you know, to be treated in a very unpleasant and unfriendly way often. Oh, I, and I have to be curious because it's the only game in town. If I don't be nice to the person behind the counter, I might have a problem renewing my license or getting a new tag for the plate. Oh God, Th this is the problem. We become so desensitized by having to, oh, well, that's how government operates that we don't like it, but we take it for granted. We don't criticize it. In the market, we expect things always to be better and improving. Think of when you go to the supermarket, you're waiting online, okay? 
if they have staff available and they see that the lines at the checkout counters are getting too long, they just open another line. Or they now have the self-serve line. So you don't even have to wait for someone to be doing it for you. Now, I traveled in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. Uh, my, my wife is Russian. I met her there. Uh, and I lived on these visits under socialism in practice. You, let me just tell your, 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 your viewers how life was like for shopping compared to, oh, I waited five minutes for the woman at the register to get to me. Five minutes. Oh, life is so rough. Comrade, you want to buy bread at, pe at people's bread store. Go into store and get online. This is long line. Wait long time to get to front of line. And you tell a woman behind counter, want pumpernickel, want rye, assuming they even have it. <laughs> this is the centrally planned economy where there's nothing. So now you, she says, okay, here is little ticket. Go to that line. Now you wait on second line. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And you get to register, and you pay for bread. Now you have receipt. Now, comrade, you go on third line. And guess what? You wait, and you wait, and you wait. And then you get your bread. Now you've been to the people's bread store. But even in under socialism, man does not leave my bread alone. Now you want milk and butter. Now with your mesh shopping bags, you start walking to the people's dairy store. Ain't next door to bread store. Hot heat of summer, cold of winter in Moscow. You trudge to where store might be. And what do you do in the dairy store? Line one, line two, line three. So now you have your dairy products. But wouldn't you like to have some meat? <laughs> so many didn't even find meat in the Soviet Union. Go to meat store, people's meat store. Line one, line two, line three. This is how people lived under socialism. And then people bitch and complain. Oh, it was so crowded at the supermarket. Yeah, it took me five or 10 minutes to get out of the place. You wait on one of those lines in socialism in practice, you could be in the bread store for over an hour just to buy one loaf of bread and then have to do the shopping at other all the other people's stores, run, owned, controlled, and, 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 and supplied by the government. And uh, then we get called uh, people who are just obsessed with things like property and we're very materialistic, whereas they care about the people. Well, if I can't go in and just take all the bread that I want, well, that's some people excluding me from a scarce resource. So in, this, in the same thing, uh, in the same light, they're having property rights as well, except the state is the monopolist property owner. So it's, uh, it, all of a sudden, it's, uh, it, it becomes okay. Uh, that is uh, th that is another one. So so why is it that we are pinned with being very materialist and uh, only caring about uh, you know the the lower uh, things in life? The Simpsons and cereal are what the capitalists care about. The socialist cares about achieving full spirituality and uh, humanity coming together as one. If I want uh, to live in a spiritual place, why should I care about liberalism instead of socialism? For the simple fact, suppose you're, you're, you're a religious person and you're living in a socialist society. The Soviet Union, the old Soviet bloc countries in Eastern Europe, today still Cuba, Nicaragua, North Korea, Venezuela, okay? 
Now, remember, under Marxist philosophy, you know, religion is the opium of the masses, right? Scientific socialism, dialectical materialism, right? So, but, you know, their constitution, the Soviet constitution said freedom of, of religion. But what if you want to get together with some people who share your faith and to have a place of worship? Huh? Government owns the land. No private land. What if they don't want to allocate it? Central plan for the needs of all people, comrade. Not, does not permit your little narrow designer for land for church. In the same way, even if they allocated the land in principle, the government owns all the construction companies. What if it's part of the central plan? You don't have a priority to build the church. The government owns all the printing stores. What if the government central plan doesn't have a priority for Bibles and hymnals to be printed up for you? Okay or the pews in the church once the building is constructed. You, there, is no, there are no personal freedoms. There are no civil liberties such as freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of association, independent of a society that has and respects a wide latitude of private property. I have a faith, you may not share it. You might not wanna pay for me or subsidize my beliefs, fine. But there's some fellow who wants to either sell or rent land. And I and other people who share my faith have to pool some resources and we buy it or rent it from them. We hire a private construction company. They don't care what, 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 what they're being paid to build. They just want the money. The same way in the pews, in the church, the hymnals and, and, the, and the Bibles. You go to a publishing company, you, you, you pay the price to cover their costs uh, in the marketplace. And pretty much you're going to get a, a printer who'll do the job for you. You see, you see the market depoliticizes people's purposes. When, when you go into the store and you pick up, a, let's say, a box of Cheerios off the shelf, right? Do you wonder, well, who built, who, who made this Cheerios? Do I share his religious views? Do, do, do we have common political values? Uh, does he love his dog? Does he kick his wife? Oh, no, wait, he loves his wife, kicks the dog. Who knows what this is? Yeah, you don't. The market gives you anonymity that you earn money by serving others. And then you get to spend your money in any way you want because others are only interested in virtually all cases in merely providing products that enable them reciprocally to make the money to buy the things they want. That is what the freedom of the marketplace gives us. That, that ability to, to follow our own values, not by government-imposed values and standards and, and ethical beliefs, but those we have either singularly or that we form voluntary associations with others to share, to have a camaraderie, to, to proselytize for. That is what, free, what a free society is about, not the heavy hand of government restricting all of us to what those who design the plan and command and control the plan want us to have because they know what's good for us better than ourselves. I mean, listen to Joe Biden. He knows the cars we could, we should drive. We know the way we should heat our homes. He knows how we should fuel our industries. He knows the education we should have. He knows the healthcare we should have. He knows the retirement we should have. He knows, he knows, he knows, he knows. The arrogance the hubris of all those in politics who share this mentality, not just in the United States. Think of uh, Xi Jinping in China. He, he, 
He believes he knows what's right for 1.4 billion people. Okay. Or Putin. Ah, it is in the destiny of Russia to reconquer Ukraine. We must, we must invade and kill what I declare to be neo-Nazis. And if they resist, we bomb them into smithereens. I mean, so it's not just our politicians. This is a breed that is international in its corruption, its hubris, its arrogance, and its willingness to hurt others in the pursuit of what they think is the right thing. When a lot of people advocate for democracy, democratic socialism, or socialism, they will seldom uh, say that uh, the, the Soviet Union is very good. Not everyone is as terrible as Richard Wolff. I know those people are out there. But when it comes to uh, the examples that people do use, it's usually Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland. When it comes to those Nordic uh, countries, are those examples of socialism in practice where it does not become so overbearing and totalitarian, therefore socialism is something that we should embrace? Well, let me, let me begin answering that with a comment that the Prime Minister of Denmark made a few years ago when Comrade Bernie Sanders uh, said, America should be more like Sweden than Denmark and Norway. The Prime Minister of Denmark said, au contraire, Denmark is not a socialist society, and neither is Sweden or Norway now. What they do have is fairly open and slight, somewhat regulated, but relatively free competitive economies, and particularly open to international trade. Since they're small economies, they need to have international intercourse with the rest of the world to buy things that they can't produce at home through the exports that they can give to others. Uh, and having such a vibrant economy, what they impose on the society, for good or ill, because that's not what we're talking about right now, they impose a rather extensive welfare state. Now, that's a different argument. Is it desirable to have a welfare state? Could not the market itself improve the standards of living sufficiently and provide the private sector philanthropic avenues that would in the long run do far better than the government's redistributive programs? That's a different issue. But as far as them being socialist economies, those countries are not social economies. Socialist economies are where the government either comprehensively or really fairly extensively either controls or commands the use of the means of production and through various forms of heavy-handed regulation or outright planning, direct what gets produced, where it gets produced, how it gets produced, and by whom. This is what the Biden administration and all these people at Davos at the World Economic Forum want. They want global fascism. They don't want to nationalize your businesses. No. But like, but, but like, like El Duce, Mussolini, or Der Fuhrer Hitler, what they want to do is impose rules, controls, and a planning network that tells private businesses what they're going to produce, how, where, when, with what technologies, and in fairness and in equity, the wages they'll pay and, and, and the quotas of hiring different types of people. So it's, it's basically a planned economy. Right now, Norway and Sweden and Denmark have made degrees of government intervention and redistribution greater than I, as a more traditional classical liberal, would want and would argue for. But there is no way to claim that they in any way represent an economy like China or, 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 or the old Soviet Union or Cuba still today, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what you can actually do is empirically test this ideology 
of the socialists, and you can check out things like the Human Freedom Index. Here are Nordic countries that rank higher than the United States. Norway, Iceland, Sweden, Finland, and Denmark. So on net, when it comes to which society is more free with more respect to property rights, well, those countries are actually beating America on Net, when you look at things like the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute, right. and you can look at the metrics that they use. So uh, uh, I don't know how this lie got started. Was it just because they have a lot of uh, social redistribution? Is that just it? And then they wanted to, they needed something to distract from, like the Polish solidarity movement getting crushed? You know, first, I should point out that there was a time when Sweden uh, which for many decades was con was controlled in the sense that they had parliamentary control by the social democrats, the democratic socialists. And they attempted planning and heavy-handed regulation. And the Swedish economy started stagnating and going down. And then at some point, even without another party coming into office per se, the social democrats realized that they could not deliver the goods. In other words, they were killing the goose that could lay a golden egg. And that they started freeing up and privatizing them these things themselves. Uh, just think of how Sweden did not go through this heavy-handed lockdown business during the yeah. COVID crisis, whereas the rest of the world followed the Chinese model. Right? Followed the Chinese model. What was the Chinese model under Xi Jinping? Oh, there's one person who's come sick. Shut down an entire municipal area with tens of millions of people. Don't don't produce. Don't go to work. Don't go shopping except for our, what we declare to be necessities. Don't leave your house and don't go, and go within four miles of another human being. That was the Chinese model. So, so we all followed the, 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 the communist planned model, but the Swedes basically did not. Now, they made some errors, but that was more like not knowing the demographics of where the virus was at first going to be most negatively affecting people. But they didn't lock down. They, they, they didn't shut down their societies and they did far better because they had a more open philosophy about these things. Now, again, I want to emphasize as a classical liberal, if I, if I was visiting Sweden and was asked to give a public address, but recognizing I'm the guest and I'm supposed to be polite and tactful, I would explain why I think that the pri private sector could do most, if not all of what their welfare state does and would do it better in private hands. But the fact is they are not socialist economies. And, uh, and, and Bernie Sanders, who was one of those who tried to create this illusion, was it? I mean, Bernie Sanders is, is basically a, a, a communist. He went on his honeymoon to the Soviet Union. He, th think of it, he, drive, he flies in to the Soviet Union with his bride and they spend, sp spend their wedding night together in a people's hotel. And he gets up and he opens the drapes and what's outside the window? A statue of Lenin. And he says, oh, baby, look at that Lenin statue. I'm getting hot again. Let's do it. I mean, this is this. Uh, yeah, this guy's a wacko. OK, this guy's a wacko. So so don't believe anything he says, particularly about this, this Scandinavian country. When it comes to workplace safety and consumer safety. Is that a place where the state should step in? Things like the Food and Drug Administration or even the Department of Agriculture or Environmental Protection Agency? Uh, actually, I, I, this usually drives many people crazy when they ask me similar questions. 
The answer is basically no. I mean, that there, there's, there, there's an excellent chapter in a book by Milton Friedman, uh, an early book of his called Capitalism Freedom from 1962, on occupational licensing and, and certification. And he explains a lot of the fact that the private sector did, and even parallel to what the government is doing, still does, private licensing, private certification, uh, private insurances, companies act as, as guarantors for product quality because companies take out insurance, right? Do insurance companies like to pay out claims? No, they like to get premiums but not pay out claims. It's in their interest to see that if they take on someone as a client for which they're gonna insure the product or the safety qualities of the product or the manufacturing of the product, that, 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 that company is operating by various safety standards of both how they produce and what they're selling. So this doesn't happen. And by the way, you know, those say, but, but the businessman won't care if he poisons his, his customers. Well, you know, most businesses count on repeat business. You know, if, I, if he sells you bare aspirin and you die the next day, you're not likely to buy another bottle of bare aspirin. And the word is going to get out. And a lot of people who have not died yet from eating bare aspirin are probably going to say, maybe I shouldn't buy it. I mean, it, it's not in the self-interest, but it, it is a fascinating subject in itself. That, that there are a variety of private certification and, and research and development and insurance associations that in fact provide many of these safeguards and protections. I would argue the same thing about lawyers, about doctors, uh, about all the professionals that usually people say, well, if government doesn't do it, what are we gonna do? Um, the, the, the private sector will, will handle this. And then I say, but what about incompetent doctors? Are there not incompetent doctors today? Uh, are there not people that you feel that uh, that 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 he wasn't qualified to do it? I mean, m maybe some of your viewers will remember that back in the early 1980s, Ronald Reagan ordered the U.S. military uh, to invade a little Caribbean island called Grenada. <laughs> Clint Eastwood made a movie about it called Heartbreak Ridge. Uh, so why, why, did, why did Reagan order the military to invade this little pipsqueak island in the Caribbean? Oh, it's threatened with a Marxist government taking over and there's a lot of Americans on the island. Well, why were there a lot of Americans on this middle of nowhere Caribbean island? Because there were a medical school there. And why was these Americans at this medical school? Because they couldn't get into medical schools in the United States. Oh, they must have been bad students. They couldn't pass the exams. No, the vast majority of them had good grades coming out of school. Their pre-med studies in college, you know, their, their entry exam exams to get to, to be considered for admission. But you see, the American Medical Association sets standards of how many medical schools in the United States, how many students can be taken in each year, uh, and the certification process out of which you come out of these schools. It's basically a way for the existing body of physicians to control the supply of new competitors coming into the market. You narrow the number of competitors, you're guaranteeing the demand for your product and therefore the income you can earn from it. So the, 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 these, these, these seemingly good you know, associations and, and standards are often, often just ways for existing competitors to limit the market so as to preserve their market shares and positions.
Yeah, there's a uh, great page on places like uh, Wikipedia where you could look at all the professional certifications. Some yeah. are state, but the vast majority are in the voluntary sector. Yes. Uh, things like uh, Underwriters Laboratory being yeah. um, the most popular when it comes to things like baseball cards. There's a lot of them that they're commonly referred to as stamp of approval agencies. So just as those have shortcomings, governments also have shortcomings. Not sure why that, again, is only pinned on us. Oh, but but what if uh, Moody's doesn't foresee the coming of the financial crisis? Well, Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen also weren't yelling at the top of rooftops uh, it, warning us about it either. So uh, professional certification. I love the Granada example. That one I was not uh, familiar with. Um, I, I just mentioned as a, as a compliment to what you just said there is that, uh, is that one of the advantages of the Internet is that you're interested in some product, some service, you, you can click and say reviews. And those are people who put the product, taking advantage of the service. Now, there's always going to be someone who bitches and complains. That's human nature. But when you have maybe 200 reviews, and some are going to be negative, and some are positive, and one is either a lot negative or a lot positive, you can go through them and see what people who have used or purchased that product or taken advantage of that service have concluded ab about what that, 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 that company or, or individual is offering to them. And in, and in that case, that's another way of the market itself to serve as a check and a balance to assure quality and, and, and competitive honesty. Yep. That, that's a, uh, uh, another one there. They say, uh, well, look, look, Richard, you and I are really smart guys, but the average person is stupid, and so that's why you can't have a free market where they because they'll just buy really stupid things. Yet that same person believes that all these stupid people should have a right to vote for politicians, which get trillions of dollars of power uh, every uh, every single year. There's so many uh, examples. The the final one that I'd like you to address is uh, something like food stamps. When it comes to all right, even if I concede. Healthcare, housing, and schooling are much more expensive than they otherwise would be as a result of the state coercively interfering in what otherwise would be voluntary exchanges. We have to have some state welfare. We have to have some social safety net like Social Security for those who uh, are no longer, let's say, productive in their older years. How does Richard Epling respond? But historically, even before the standards of living that we take for granted in the today, uh, over the last, let's say, just 100 years or so. In the 19th century, there had developed in England and a version of it in the United States what were called the Friendly Societies. These were mutual assurance associations for death benefits, the breadwinner dies, how, how are we going to pay for his burial, uh, uh, retirement pensions, uh, medical services, uh, uh, a saving system to be able to put money aside to have a house, uh, and all of and, and, uh if you read this literature, it is available if you want to look for it. I've even written some reviews about these books. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, that's like the 1880s and 1890s, uh, it is estimated because th these companies kept records, these, these associations kept records, and we know this, the, 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 the census numbers from the British government doing the census, that by, by the 1880s and 1890s, uh, Two-thirds to three-quarters of the entire British population was covered by these friendly associate, friendly society associations. 
and if you then look at the records, well, you say, well, you know, people who are better well off or that their version of the middle class, yeah, they could afford to pay these insurances to these private associations. No, what the figures show is that the largest proportion of people participating in them were in the low income categories, quote, the low poor working class. Why? Because they realized that if something happened wrong to them or their family, they really had little resources. So it's necessary for them to take a few of the pennies out of their admittedly modest salary and to buy these insurance policies. The 19th century was also the century of the blossoming of, of, of private charity and philanthropy, uh, hospitals, orphanages, uh, 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 retraining people uh, to become gainfully employed. Now, a large number of them were done by religious organizations. Think of the Salvation Army, uh, the Catholic Church, various Protestant denominations. Uh, they would have the food kitchens. They would have shelters. Uh, so, so if this was all great, what destroyed it? Well, the fact is, in, in the late 19th century, uh, our version of the modern welfare state got to be, began to be introduced in Imperial Germany. Uh, when Otto von Bismarck, the Iron Chancellor, was Chancellor of, of Germany, and the Socialists were winning votes in the in the in the uh, in the German Parliament, the Reichstag, and it was afraid, well, you know, the Demo the Socialists would be voted into office, the you know, majority. So how do you how do you, how do you dissuade the masses from voting for the Communists, right, the Socialists? Bismarck came up with this idea, and he said this to several people who interviewed him. Uh, I decided to bribe the people. That, that we would give them free health care, we would give them retirement pensions, uh, a, a, a vocational training, uh, rest, re recreational rest vacation areas, so that they would vote for us, the, the established parties. And this seemed to be so progressive. American economists and historians and philosophers and political scientists went to study at German universities. Oh, Germany is so progressive. They care about the little guy with these programs. And then at the beginning of the... 20th century, these Americans who studied at German universities came back and they became the basis of the American progressive movement. Oh, we have to copy the German. Oh, well, they'll crew rough around the edges and they listen to the stupid oom-pa-pa music and, and their soldiers walk around goose-stepping with those still stupid pointy hats. But, you know, oh, there's the good side of all these, of this German collectivism. And they became the basis of the progressive movement that then became the basis for the policies of the New Deal of the 1930s. And in Great Britain, and concerning these friendly societies, uh, around 1904, uh, the British government started introducing their version of what we now call the welfare state. And because it was funded by taxes, people got it for, quote, free. And many of these friendly societies couldn't compete against that. How do you, how do you compete against someone who's giving the same type of product, but for free. And it basically over time drove the friendly societies out of existence because you could continue paying out of your take-home pays, uh, your, your, your premiums and contributions, or you could get it from your taxes for free. And basically the, the state's emerging welfare state undermined the private sector. The book is For a New Liberalism. Find it in the link in the description below. Thanks to everyone for watching. Keith and I don't trade on anyone in the Libertarian Institute. Dr. Ebling, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on.